Well, before we get started, I think it'd be uh, kind of nice to recognize Glenn and Karen. I think it's your 58th wedding anniversary today. Yeah. I was trying to remember where I was 58 years ago. <laughs> I just can't remember, so. Um, but congratulations. And uh, I also, before we get started, just want to embarrass someone else. And um, my brother and his family are visiting from Ohio over here, and we're... <laughs> And since our sermon is uh, a big portion of it's on the prodigal son, and he's my older brother, I, it was not intended <laughs> to be uh, an illustration for the sermon. But all right, now, and Eric and I are going to take turns uh, trading off talking, and so I'll hand it to you, Erica. All right. So we're going to talk about things that are lost today. Um, and God's passion for the lost. So I'm gonna start out. All right, so um, I don't know if it's that common, but I think a lot of us have lost a child at some point or another. <laughs> Maybe just for a few seconds. Um, this picture was about 15 years ago or so. Uh, we went to Disney World, and you know, I'm one of those parents. All my kids were in yellow. Why? So they won't get lost and we can find them easy. And um, we're walking along and our little boy, Josiah, who loved to just get distracted, got distracted by something. Lily even tried to stop him from straying. She's like, no, mom and dad told us to stay here. Um, but all of a sudden we turned around and he was gone. And we were with some friends there and so, we decided Joe and I would stay where we were, and we sent our friend looking for him. And sure enough, he found him. But in those moments, it was maybe, maybe five minutes, maybe less. Um, in those moments, the anxiety of knowing that someone is lost is incredibly scary, right? Um, and your desire to see those people again um, is very great. So that's one thing um, to think about here as we start. So uh, we're going to, if you want to turn, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. We're actually going to do the whole chapter. It may be a bit... Um, we decided to show Sean how to preach through a whole chapter. <laughs> At once. So um, we're pretty sure we can make it through. So... Uh, so we wanted to uh, also first, uh, before we get to the first couple of verses, kind of give you some background. And um, Joe and I have been working on some biblical interpretation things. Um, what's important to understand, not just the context of the entire chapter 15, but of um, the culture, first century culture, especially when Jesus is telling parables. These are three parables in this chapter that Jesus is telling um, in response to a question. So, um, uh, so a couple of the things, um, sources we used, we, we had a professor back in Chicago and then he was our pastor for a while and we were in Bible studies with him, Walter Liefeld. 
and he helped um, with the expositor's commentary, and so uh, we really enjoy looking into that commentary when we're trying to dig deeper. And then um, we relied also on a book by Kenneth Bailey um, called Poet and Peasant and Through Peasant's Eyes. It's actually two books published as one. And Ken Bailey lived, I don't know, 20, 30 years in remote Middle Eastern villages back in the 50s and 60s and learned a lot about you know, those isolated villages that are a lot like the first century um, time period. They, they haven't changed a ton. And so he, he was able to make friendships and ask questions about how they would interpret these parables if they were hearing them for the first time in that setting and uh, drew a lot of really interesting cultural insights that just enhance what you um, already might know of these familiar stories. Um, and so the reason we enjoy doing that is because when you understand the first century culture that Jesus was in and how his, the original listeners were hearing the stories and, and then that helps you apply even more to our modern situation when you're um, trying to apply these uh, biblical principles to your life. And so the other thing to remember about parables, you may know this already, but Jesus often told a story when he'd get a direct question or they would try to trap him or those sorts of things, he would tell a story, a parable with a point, sometimes a zinger in there, right, that really was unexpected to the, to the people. And so when we learn about those contexts, it just makes it more and more rich when we apply it to our lives. And then um, the last thing is just to note, um, Luke, as he recorded Jesus's teachings, often had groupings of three parables. I mean, the chapter before had three parables in response to a, a situation. And, and throughout this whole um, section of Luke from about chapter 14 to 19, a lot of Jesus' teaching is about the unexpected, um, or the, the way we interact with maybe the outcasts of society. And often the characters in his stories were people that weren't like, oh, today it might be Michael Jordan, maybe 20 years ago, um, <laughs> or um, you know, a, a acceptable person or a rich person or a noble person who did this great thing. It, it was often someone that was an outcast or dealing with that. So um, it's kind of in that whole setting that this chapter takes place. <laughs> she has her own mic. All right. Um, so Luke 15, one through three says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told this parable. Okay, we're gonna stop there because um, this is who the parables are directed to, right? So he is directing these, these three parables to the Pharisees and scribes who were critical of him for spending time with tax collectors and sinners, okay? Um, all right, these were not, so the Pharisees were one of the Jewish sects that came out kind of during, between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they really focused on obeying the law, every single law. And they, there was even more laws than are in the Old Testament, so they tried to uh, obey them very consistently, and in that, tried to separate them from anybody they thought was not 
um, religious enough, basically. So, um, so just like today, right? What's our main way of fellowshipping with people? Food, right? Same thing there. And Jesus was eating with them and fellowshipping with them. And this was not okay with the Pharisees, okay? Because they were not accepted within the Pharisee framework of, you know, for us today, who is a good Christian, right? Uh, would be the same kind of thing. Um, so Jesus was, as we know, kind of stirring up their thoughts and beliefs, trying to get them to think beyond what, what they were used to, to kind of stretch their idea of who is okay and who, <clears throat> who does Jesus want to love um, who does Jesus love? Not just the Pharisees and the scribes, right? The entire world. So they're trying to kind of, he's trying to kind of help them uh, break those norms down. Uh, okay. So um, just building on that, the, the idea of a, a religious teacher sitting down and eating with these outcasts um, was just totally unacceptable, right? And, and, um, and the Pharisees were basically accusing him, well, these people are following him, but look at what he's doing, right? He's not, he's not following our norms. And back then, perhaps a wealthy, noble person or a, a religious leader might help the poor and give them food, but they wouldn't sit down and eat with them, right? And this reminded me of you know, the experience a few of us have had in going to um, the Good News Rescue Mission and serving some meals. And uh, if you haven't done that, after you, you serve, you're invited to then partake and go sit out with those you're serving. And when you do that, it feels a little uncomfortable. Um, I don't know if, if, has anyone done that sort of thing at the Good News Rescue Mission or helping the homeless? Yeah, some of you have. And so, um, it, to me, that kind of helps me understand, you know, not that I hope I'm not too pharisaical in my outlook, but we all kind of have that little, uh, you know, this isn't my type of crowd or, you know, that sort of thing um, that can, 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 and this passage was convicting me of that when we were reading it. And so now we're going to dive into the, the first of the three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, and um, this is verses three through seven. And if uh, Erica, perhaps you could read those verses. Okay, and so he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other 99 in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. So in this first uh, parable responding to the Pharisees and scribes' accusations, it comes out... Um, I think, you know, the main theme is pretty clear, the joy in finding the lost sheep, right? And representing uh, the joy in finding uh, someone lost. 
And the Pharisees might be going, okay, where, where is this heading? Because um, they might be able to relate to this a little bit. Um, and yet, um, you know, they, they may be saying, how does that really answer the situation we just have? But some of the, the uh, cultural settings and um, structural things, uh, this, we're not going to look at the structure in detail in this parable, but it kind of goes through a, a uh, build to a main point, which is the joy in finding the lost, and then repeats backwards the same points building to that. And you'll see that, and we'll put some slides up on the next two parables that, that illustrate that even more. But some of the first century things that maybe we don't know about is um, it was kind of paradoxical, paradoxical, if you can say that word, for Jesus to pick shepherds and sheep as this illustration. The Pharisees, even though they might have respected some of the Old Testament shepherds and imagery, Shepherds were part of the outcast and unclean people. They didn't live according to the law. And so having the shepherds as a, as a main character would have maybe been, you're comparing us to, to those people, um, going through the Pharisees and scribes' minds. Um, so there's kind of that tension of, well, shepherds in the Old Testament, David and, and uh, others, King David and others, um, they respected, but not the current profession. Does that make sense? Um, the other thing that's interesting is the idea of owning uh, 100 sheep. Which of you would, who owns 100 sheep would do that? Back then, if you owned 100 sheep, that meant you were somewhat more wealthy, and you probably hired a shepherd, and your hired person would be going and seeking the lost sheep, not you. Um, so that would have been sort of, um, you know, maybe uncomfortable. But we, we'd send someone to look for that lost sheep. You know, we wouldn't do that kind of work. Um, so forcing them to kind of compare themselves to that outcast group that they don't accept was part of the point Jesus was masterfully weaving into this parable. And then uh, the other um, thing I just wanted to share is that uh, another thing in a more village setting, this comes from that Kenneth Bailey um, book, is probably in a village setting, nobody owned 100 sheep, but they might all, you know, you might watch all your family's sheep, all your relatives' sheep. And so that stress of a lost sheep that maybe wasn't yours, but was part of your responsibility, um, would come into the hearer's mind uh, quite often back in those days. So again, that kind of builds the point of the Pharisees, we're self-building our worth before God by keeping the law, and those people aren't. But the idea of I might still be responsible to partake in God's bringing, looking for the lost would have been uncomfortable for them to hear. So there's a couple of the little zingers in there that maybe, you know, we get the point of the parable when we read it today, but maybe that those kinds of points don't quite come to mind. So, um, I'll, uh, so the main theme which we talked about was the joy in finding the lost, and, um, and Jesus is welcoming these sinners because he's seeking the lost, right? Um, and then just think of for a minute of something you've lost in your life and took a, a little while to find. Now maybe for Dale it's just the remote. 
<laughs> I don't know, but um, I know, you know, it might be the phone, your phone, or if you're a teen or 20-something and you lost your phone, that would be very anxiety-ridden, um, right? Um, um, I think of another lost child situation to build on Erica's story, because we're, we're equal lost child opportunity parents. And um, we had a time where uh, we were at Pizza Hut here in Reading, and we're with our family, uh, our Erica's brother and sister and their family, and so there were like seven kids and two cars and everything, and so we all got in and started driving back to Palisadro, and uh, we got just on 44, and both Erica and I were like, something's not right uh, in the back mm -hmm. of our minds. And we so just had this sinking feeling like, what? So I don't know if you wrong. called me or I called you because uh, we're in different cars. And do you have Lily? <coughs> no, she's with you, isn't she? No, she's not. Um, so we turn around and poor Lily, about seven years old, is, is uh, in the... Uh, terrified. Terrified in the uh, pizza hut. And... Uh, had gone to the restroom. And so ever since then, uh, even today, I think, um, if we're out to eat, she tells us, I'm going to the restroom. <laughs> um, but, but again, the, the relief, the relief and then kind of, you know, it's more of a relief at first and then the joy of finding something you lost um, when it's important to you is uh, something we all can relate to in these parables. All right, uh, the next one is <clears throat> the lost coin, verses 8 to 10. So I'll read this to you. Um, second parable. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together all her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, notice the repetition. You know, when God wants you to learn something, he repeats it. Um, so almost word for word, there's some repetition in there from the first parable of joy over the lost um, and, and gathering a group of people to celebrate in both parables. Um, they gathered people to celebrate this thing that was lost and now is found. And then they, uh, almost word for word, describes how um, heaven or the angels would rejoice at, the, at someone turning to God. Um, so setting, village setting, um, <clears throat> is... Um, So mostly self-sufficient, they're bartering. Um, the, the interesting thing about this, so she didn't just lose a coin. What's possible? Well, so it's not set in stone. But what possibly happened is that a woman would wear coins on her headdress, on her hat or whatever you want to call it, and those might be her dowry, her life savings, basically, for... Um, for getting married someday or just her life savings. And so when we talk about she lost one coin out of 10, so that's one-tenth of your savings, your life savings, everything that you have. Um, and that's what she lost. So she it didn't, was She huge. didn't have Bitcoin? <laughs> no. No? Okay. Didn't have stock, didn't have Bitcoin, 
didn't even have a savings in a bank. Um, she had it perhaps on her head or in her little house. The other thing in that area was that for the floor of their homes, they often had basaltic rock or crushed uh, crushed rock for floor, or might be really crushed. You know, uh, some of our paths around here have that crushed stone that's kind of really fine. Um, so it could be something like that, where it's really fine, but can you imagine finding a coin in something that's not a solid floor? So it could be really difficult to find. <coughs> um, sweeping the floor um, could have been the most efficient way to find it, just trying to sweep it up. Um, to find it. So um, also, again, Jesus likes to use women in his parables and his teaching um, just to kind of break those norms as well. He used a woman as the main character, um, again, to emphasize to the Pharisees that, you know what, you need to broaden your scope, your thinking, right? Um, um, and that he does not, Jesus does not accept the fact that they see them as a marginalized community, the women, right? So he brings them to the forefront to say, no, they're, they're important also. <clears throat> um, so on this, you can see on the screen the structure. <clears throat> this is what Joe was talking about in the other one. Luke likes to use this structure. So you can see loses a coin, search for the coin until she finds it. Then you have the joy in the community. <clears throat> and then you have, um, um, because she found it, and then what was lost. And then that goes into the celebration of um, sinners who come to Christ, right? Um, okay, so again, thinking of application, what would you do if you lost 10% of your life savings? Right? That's pretty major. If we work our whole lives um, to save this up and we lost 10%, that's big. Uh, so thinking about that and how happy you would be if you found it. I know we've probably lost 10% in the stock market lately if you have stock, but um, <laughs> not going to find it. <clears throat> but um, so thinking of that, of the joy of then regaining that um, and how you might celebrate. We probably don't celebrate that the way that they would have back then, um, but we'll talk about some other things that we do celebrate as a community here. Um, okay. Okay, so in the first parable, it was one one-hundredth of the flock, and then it was one-tenth of wealth. And then in the third parable, to drive the point home, now it's about people rather than possessions. So um, we move into the parable of the prodigal son, which is very um, familiar to most of us. And um, what we enjoy um, about this parable is that it seems like every time we look at it, you can get a new insight or a new understanding. And so hopefully there'll be some of those uh, things for you um, as we go through this. So um, we want to share uh, some of the, the cultural insights and things as we go through this and applications. And what we'll do is Erica will read a couple of verses, then I'll, I'll speak a little bit about them, and we'll go through the parable that way since it's a longer passage. 
All right, so verses 11 through 13. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate in wild living. Okay, so with the opening of this parable, there's really uh, several things that would have grabbed the attention of those hearing it. Um, and perhaps because it's familiar to many of us, we don't always think of how, what the impact of some of these statements would be. But the, the message of the younger son to the father was what? I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance now, right? And that would have been very shocking in that culture. I mean, it would be shocking in our culture, I guess, too, right? But mm -hmm. in their culture, it would have been um, unheard of. And, um, and the, so the listeners and the Pharisees would have been, wait a minute, that's not right. That son needs to be put in his place and disciplined. And, um, and so that would be their initial thoughts, right? And what happens? The father grants the request. So a second shocking thing happens at the beginning of the parable. And in going through their minds and our minds when we really think about it, what? What? He did it? He gave him the inheritance? He... And then a third thing, the older son. The older son's place would have been to step in and say, hey, no, 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 young, you know, brother, this is not okay. Um, the older son just let it happen and took the inheritance too. So oftentimes uh, when I first would read this parable, I never quite got the older son part, why that's in there, and we're gonna explore that a little bit more. But so the kind of three sorts of things, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, everything is not how we live our lives um, here in our culture. So Jesus is really grabbing their attention. And you know what, I don't know, if, should we put the structure up there? I think we should. So it's kind of small, but you can kind of see the same idea of the building of the very uh, literary structure that Jesus used in, in com composing this masterful parable to tell the Pharisees. So 14, 14 uh, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine came, occurred in that country and he began doing without. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to have his fill of the carob pods that the pigs were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his... No, that's what I did. Okay. So um, <laughs> one of the books we read described this as the younger son's... <clears throat> slow descent into hell um, in that in verse um, um, in verses 13 to 16 it just keeps getting worse and worse first he he goes off and then all his inheritance is gone is spent and no one's helping him right so he has to get a job and what's the job he gets <clears throat> herding pigs for Jewish culture, that's kind of the not clean, right, I think, if I remember <laughs> my Bible. Um, not something a Jewish person would do. 
Um, and so what does that imply about this younger son's heart? He really doesn't want to go face the father. He is willing to take one of the most unclean, outcast jobs there is to try to avoid facing reality. Um, and just a little side note on the, the carob pods. Um, I wasn't sure if we'd share this, but I will. Um, I didn't know what that was. What's a carob pod? Um, and so apparently there's, there's carob in the Middle East that is nourished, nourishable. It, you eat it and it fills you up. It's a type of uh, um, food. And, um, but there's also wild carob that doesn't have very much nourishment at all. And so if these were herding pigs in the fields and they were foraging, even if he tried to eat those carob pods, it wouldn't have nursed him, it wouldn't have filled him up, it wouldn't have kept him alive. So even though he longed to eat them, it wouldn't have done him any good. So it's kind of giving that idea of how, how low he's descending. Okay, now All we'll right. look at verses uh, 17 to 19. All right, verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of his fathers, of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread, but I am dying here from hunger. I will set out and go to my father and say to, my, say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. Okay, so um, in my casual reading of this passage, I always thought of this as he's repenting. Here's the culmination of the, the little structure, right? He's repenting. And, um, but then, after studying it more, it's more of an initial repentance. Okay, um, things are pretty bad, and there's nowhere lower to go. I guess I could go back to my father. At least he, they have food there. Um, they aren't going to accept me. I've kind of made myself an outcast by telling my dad I wish he was dead, and my older brother owns everything, and I don't want to mooch off of him. And uh, probably the village I live in, they might reject me and force me away because of how terrible I've been. But you know what? Oh, if I go work for my dad and work for my food, then I won't be mooching off my brother and um, just make me a hired servant. I'm not really, I mean, I could always quit again. Um, I'm not fully under my father's authority. You kind of see how the reasoning might be going. Um, and so I'm, I'm willing to take the first step, but it's not really full repentance. And so that's the plan. So we've got the plan. He's got his speech rehearsed. He's ready to go. Make me your hired servant. He's going back to his father. Verse 20. Okay, verse 20. So he set out and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So here's some more shocks to the Pharisees. Um, probably what was going through their mind is, okay, now the father's <clears throat> going to say, see, I told you so. Or see, I let you, I let you go and look what happened. Um, you don't know everything uh, type of a, a reaction. For maybe judgmental reaction. Maybe, uh, you know, the villagers would... Which, honestly, would be the human reaction of most of us, <laughs> probably. I mean, if you've had someone who've, who's uh, rebelled in your life and 
when they come back? Isn't that the sort of thing that goes through your mind? Um, but what does the father do? He acts very unexpectedly. This would have been surprising in and of itself to accept the son back. But what are some of the details in this verse? He must have been watching for the son, right? Because he saw him from far off. And then he ran to him. Now, you may have heard some of this before, but what does that mean for a, a wealthy noble, nobleman, if you want to think of it that way, the, the father in a, in a Middle Eastern culture? They don't run. They have their, you know, their employees, their hired servants. They, they are not running out. out uh, there's no jogging in first century. Um, and um, it would be completely undignified and probably it would have caught the attention of the rest of the village to see one of the rich guys. What, what's he doing running down the road? Um, it would have been surprising, right? And then, you know, so that would be the second thing, the surprise to those around him, the village around him. And then third, what does the father do? He reaches the son and gives total acceptance before any of the village can go ostracize the son or react to the son returning and um, prevents, you know, that sort of um, rejection of the son to happen. So the, the proactiveness of the father um, and then the kissing of him and the giving him the ring would have... Uh, was that in that verse, giving the ring, or is that coming? <clears throat> no. No, that's coming. Okay, so keep reading. <clears throat> 20. Uh, so he set out and came to... Oh, wait. 21. 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But... Uh, the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Okay. So I was foreshadowing by talking about the ring and, um, <laughs> the father, um, the first thing about that last set of the, the verses is that the son, does he give his prepared speech? He leaves out, make me your hired servant. He leaves. This is where we think true full repentance came. The son was overwhelmed by his father's reaction and his father's acceptance, full acceptance of him. And he ends with, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's kind of a and doesn't say, now, just make me your servant and pay me, and I can get my own food, and I don't have to be under your authority. He's fully coming under the father's um, repentance. I mean, the father's um, authority and truly repenting at this point. And then the father continues to build back out of that descent and gives him the, the ring and a kiss. Now, the ring just signifies the trust in the son. It'd be like a signet ring, sealing documents that make things official. Um, calls the village together. Now, the village probably was already watching. And um, says, let's celebrate the return of my son. Kills a fatted calf. Is the fatted calf important detail? That would have mean a big celebration. 
everybody's expected to come. It had been a lot of meat for people to eat. It would feed the whole village for a feast. And so the father is, is also protecting the son from any re, um, recrimination from the villagers because he's um, kind of semi-forcing the villagers to come and celebrate and accept the son back, right? So that would have kind of stung the Pharisees a little bit, I think, because would they, let's say, a, a tax collector repented of sin, would the Pharisees just embrace them and go eat with them? They still probably wouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and then the parable's over. Oh, wait a minute, it's not. It's not. There's this part B that comes, <laughs> and, uh, and Eric is going to share a little bit about part B. Do you want me to read verses 25 to 28? Yes. So the older son, what was he doing in all of this? He was in the field working. So now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring about these things. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Okay, so the older son hears, um, but he refuses to come to the celebration. Um, we can probably relate to that. I don't know. Were you the good kid or the bad kid? Um, so, I mean, if you're constantly doing the right thing and you're, you've got your ducks in a row and you're doing everything your dad tells you to do and then this, your sibling is just going off and being crazy and comes back and who does your dad celebrate? Him, not you, for doing everything, right? Um, so it's pretty rough. And the Pharisees too, at this point in the story, they'd be like, wait, no, this is wrong. <laughs> you should be celebrating the older son, right? He's done right by you. He's done what you've asked. Um, but, uh, so he is thinking father's being unreasonable, not holding, not holding the younger son accountable. I mean, at least, right, if your son's been disobeying you, there should be some consequence, right? Um, but there was none. Um, his father embraced him, he was repentant, and that was kind of the end of the story for that. Um, so the older son is not happy. Um, so, but we see that the father came to the older son. He didn't just, oh, he heard that he didn't come. He's like, why didn't my son come? So the father again goes out and seeks his other son. So he's also showing love to him by going out and seeking him, going to him, not waiting for him to come to the father. He is going out and seeking that older son as well. So we see him reaching out to both sons, actually. Um, and then... Verse 29 and 30. The older son answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. Does that sound like a Pharisee? <laughs> and yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours come, came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. So I, I guess he has some complaints there, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so he's angry. Um, he's always been good. Again, just, you never threw me a party. Why not? I've done what you've asked. Um, all of this complaining and comparing himself to the sinner, um, but not realizing he is a sinner too. So in need of reconciliation too, right? We know we're all sinners and we all need reconciliation to Christ. Um, whether we were the good kid or the bad kid, it doesn't matter. We all need reconciliation. Um, so this is kind of showing that need for both of them um, to respond to the father. So then the father doesn't give up. 31, 32. Verse 31, and the father said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Okay, so the father keeps trying. He doesn't give up. Um, he acknowledges the older son's possessions, but emphasizes we had to celebrate and rejoice over the lost son being found. This wasn't an option. He uses the word had. And you saw in the first two parables, they rejoiced over each thing being found. The rejoicing is a big piece of this. And to God, in both of those first two parables, we see that when a sinner is found and brought into reconciliation, the angels in heaven rejoice. This is a theme. So as we are looking at it, we too should be rejoicing um, every time someone comes into the kingdom. Really important. He, he really brings that out in these three parables. So then look at verse 33, and it says, oh, wait, there's no verse 33. <laughs> there's no finishing of the structure. Why is that? You know, all the other parables, you had this very formal structure, and people would have been used to hearing that kind of structure in the oral traditions of the first century. Why, why do, are we left hanging? Well, um, from what we've read, it's because Jesus is finishing this parable with the character the Pharisees identify with the most, the older son. And if we were finishing the story, we'd say, and then the older son came into the party and reconciled to his father and his brother and, uh, uh, you know, happy ending. They all lived happily ever after. Um, but what Jesus is doing is he stopped. And so the natural thinking of the Pharisees, he's basically inviting them to reconcile and to be, take that step they need to take to not be judging those outcasts, not be judging Jesus for eating with the sinners, but understanding the whole point is of God wanting to pursue all, all people and the joy that's there when, when any person is uh, coming to Christ and reconciled. So, um, that to me was a, a very powerful thing we learned in studying this parable more deeply. We, already, we kind of already did that. All right, so application, and you know us. If you don't know us, you will now. <laughs> um, so as we're looking at our world, what are those people that you might not want to you know, sit down and eat with, have fellowship with? Um, so. Uh, we have some pictures. These are actual pictures from Belize where we've been. 
but um, there's some very, very impoverished people. Obviously, there's impoverished people all around the world. But uh, you know, we tend to kind of shrink back from that because we're like, oh, it's kind of scary, you know, to go in that house. Um, and uh, this one, um, I think I have one. No, I don't. Okay, so, um, and then Arab refugees. <laughs> so why are we mentioning them? Because that's also a people group we want to reach out to. But when you looked at these pictures from over in Syria and them trying to get to um, someplace safe in Europe or wherever, you know, it's kind of scary. There's a lot of them, right? Um, but those refugees are now, some of them are now here in the US. Um, they are people that we can reach without traveling to the Middle East, because that's pretty scary, right? Um, uh, but there are Syrians and Afghanis in Sacramento right now. Um, some of those Af Afghan refugees served with our military for years and years, and that's, you know, some of them are in Sacramento. So um, just kind of thinking of people groups that might be a little intimidating to you, um, but to encourage you that God wants everyone reached. Um, God wants all of these struggling people, wherever they are, to be reached for Christ. And so to just kind of step out of your comfort zone a little bit, and here's one you know, more close to home. Um, so the homeless serving at the Good News Rescue Mission, um, Things like that being, being okay. What if one walked through our door, you know, and wanted to sit on a service? How would that make you feel? Um, so just kind of trying to remember, trying not to be like the Pharisees and say, you know, no, these, this group of people just can't do it. Um, but to be open to God is wanting to bring everyone into the kingdom and to be open to whoever God calls us to reach. Right? Um, so, and you don't have to just go, although I will have opportunities for you to go this year. Um, so you don't have to go though. You can pray for those that go. Um, you can help. Our church is great at giving things, right? So giving items for these people. Um, in any way that you can help, you're serving you're serving our Lord and um, taking part in his passion for the lost because he has a passion for all these people. And, you know, it doesn't, it can take five minute prayer every day. It can take um, being courageous enough to volunteer to go do something at the rescue mission or something. Um, but it doesn't take much. So we just want to encourage you um, to be open to who God is bringing across your path and, and to have that passion and to celebrate. I think we're pretty good at celebrating because when someone comes to Christ, we're, we're pretty happy and excited. Um, but that celebration is, shows God's passion, right? It is, it's kind of a taste, uh, seeing just a little glimpse of how much he loves the lost and how much he loves us. Because if he's celebrating that much, every time. He obviously loves us very much. So, yeah. 
and I was going to rip on us football fans, you know. You should be uh, celebrating as much as you do for the Broncos and the Seahawks and the 49ers, <laughs> right? So that's something we do and we celebrate. Or, um, or the Bears. Or the Bears. <laughs> or University of Nebraska. Um, so, um, yeah, just to encourage you to, to think about it that way. We get excited about a lot of things, but do we get excited about the lost? So, that's it. So, uh, worship team, will you come up? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll say a closing prayer. Lord, we're uh, grateful for um, our church family and for the wonderful uh, work that we do for you. Uh, we ask that you help us examine our hearts. Um, are we tending sometimes to be like the older son or the younger son? Or are we uh, celebratory and seeing your heart of celebration and joy when a lost come to you? We ask you to um, bless this week, help us reflect on things we've learned, and um, live our lives for you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. I guess one more prayer. So, Lord, we're uh, grateful for um, for your provision. We pray, uh, actually, for the uh, firefighters fighting the fires up in Siskiyou County. Um, we can all relate to the stress and fear and um, that that comes through facing that in a community. And we pray for the communities up there, uh, help them not be a slave to fear. And Lord, we also pray that. Um, you would use any situations up there to help any lost uh, perhaps come and, and find you. And then we can celebrate the way you celebrate. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.